Shabbat Shalom and Hak Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. I am so exciting to do, excited to bring forth this teaching tonight. I am, I really am. But before I do, I'd like to address our audience because some are trying to detract from the Malkitzedic message by wanting to pin this teaching on someone's private theology rather than examine the biblical texts without prejudice. And I want our audience to be aware that I've been teaching and studying on the Malkit Zedek for almost 15 years. And if I can realize that that doesn't give me a corner on the market for knowledge, then why can't others? I mean, I've studied many works over the years. But please, don't try and belittle me and shoehorn me into somebody else's theology. The truth is, I have been approached by others either to teach or collaborate on projects and sometimes just to learn because of my research and teachings on this subject. I pray, I study, I teach, but I'm not going to be sidelined by silly squabbles having to choose between men's doctrines and pet theologies. The Malkitzedic message is about biblical exploration. It's a journey. It's not some doctrinal destination. It truly is biblical exploration. So don't try and marginalize me by trying to conveniently tie me to any man's so-called theology. So you can write off the scriptures and the message that's presented here today. And with that, let's leave all the nonsense behind and clear up covenant confusion in ten simple points. Amen? So the title of this week's message is Clearing Up Covenant confusion in 10 points. I want to give you an overview first before I get into the 10 points so you can see where we're going. Now, the word Brit, it occurs 286 times, 286 times just in the Masoretic text. Despite extensive research on the etymology, its verbal root remains unidentified and its meaning must be determined from its usage alone. I'm going to repeat that because what happens? Somebody gets a Bible computer program. They type in Brit and all of a sudden, everywhere the word Brit appears is a covenant. So I'm going to repeat this because... We really need to understand it. 286 times it appears in the Masoretic text alone, Brit. But despite extensive research on its etymology, its verbal root remains unidentified and its meaning must be determined from its usage alone. Meaning you can't just sit behind a computer program and type in the word Brit and be an expert on covenants. 
Because everywhere the word Brit appears does not mean that it is a covenant. Depending on its context, it can be translated as treaty, pact, agreement, solemn promise, obligation, or more familiarly as covenant. You have to use the chapter and verse alone to determine the meaning of Brit. Don't assume that it means covenant. It's a very important introduction before we get into the study on covenants. Now, if Brit appears 286 times in the Masoretic text alone, how should we approach the study of covenants with all that plethora of information? That's a lot to dig through, isn't it? How are you even going to begin to start studying covenants? Are you going to really have to go through the 286 times in the Tanakh before you even get into the Brit Hadashah? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 tells us how to approach covenants. Not my way, not your way, but the way of the master. That at the time that you were without Mashiach, being excluded, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel as strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without Yahweh in the Olam Hazer. If we're going to approach covenants, we need to approach the covenants of promise because that is what we need to identify. What are these covenants of promise? So to start with, let me clarify, there are no eternal covenants in Scripture. There are no eternal covenants in Scripture. Because eternal means it has no beginning and no end. All scriptural covenants have a beginning. They have a start. Scripture, however, does contain everlasting covenants but not eternal covenants. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now the Eloah of Shalom that brought again from the dead our master Yahushua, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenants, not eternal covenants. The Hebrew word olam doesn't always line up with our concept of forever. You see, we read these Hebrew words, olam, and we're like, oh, forever, forever, forever and ever. But that isn't necessarily so, because it doesn't mean necessarily forever and unending, but it includes an awareness of a point of mind. It's imperative that we understand this before we dig in and embark on this study. Because these are the things that you can front load before you even dig in and you, you've already got your, your whole mindset and we have to change it and be open because this is a journey. This is not about theology. It has to be a journey of biblical exploration. I can't emphasize that enough because we are all growing. We are all seeking the Malchut HaShamayim, I pray, the kingdom of heaven. Now, you cannot add to a covenant. Very important that we understand that. We cannot embark on a study of covenants as 
if the book of Galucha, Galatians, and the book of Ivrim, Hebrews, doesn't exist. So I'm going to be upfront and I'm going to be honest with you. When I study covenants, it is in the context of the whole of Scripture, and that does include the book of Galatians, and it does include the book of Hebrews. Now, so Judaism's approach to covenants is not going to include Galatians, correct? Judaism's approach to covenants is not going to include the book of Hebrews, correct? So you've got to make a decision on who you're going to be studying along with. Because this is very important, because Galatians says in chapter 3, verse 15, Israelite brothers, I speak after the manner of men. Even if a Brit, a covenant is a man's Brit covenant, yet still, if it is confirmed, if it is ratified, no man sets it aside or adds to it. If a covenant is ratified, you cannot add to it. Can we all agree on that? If we can't agree on that simple premise, then we've got a whole bunch of muddy water ahead of us. Does that make sense? I get very suspicious. I really do. I get very suspicious when teachers introduce non-biblical terms to try and explain covenants. To me, it's a dead giveaway. It's a giveaway that they're trying to control the conversation. Control the conversation on their own terms, not scriptural terms. We need to be talking on scriptural terms so you can check what I'm saying. So when I say that there is no eternal covenants in scripture, but there are everlasting covenants in scripture, I should be able to support that statement with scripture. Can we agree on that? Because if I start to introduce to you non-biblical terms, then I'm controlling the conversation and I'm controlling you. And this is what makes me very wary when people start talking about covenants. I'm going to be able to verify the terms that I use in Scripture. Attempting to control the conversation and the direction of it is so common when you talk about covenants. The use of high church and Talmudic terms are the absolute favorites that are always thrown around when you talk about covenants. And here's some common control terms that you always hear. Threshold covenants, suzerain vassal treaties, ancient Near Eastern covenants, restoration covenants, Royal Grant Covenants. These are control terms. If you hear these, watch out. You're about to be fleeced and controlled by the New World Order. There are no covenants under the Levitical priesthood that are blood ratified. It's another important point. No covenants under the Levitical priesthood are Blood ratified. Not all blood covenants are everlasting. The intention of a blood covenant may be everlasting, but that doesn't make it everlasting. Exodus 32 is a prime example. And marriage is another example where a blood covenant isn't always everlasting. It's intended to be everlasting, but because of the choice of one of the parties, it may not be 
everlasting. Yahweh did divorce Israel, right? You see, so these are some things that we needed to discuss before we even embark on the 10 points of clearing up covenant confusion. So are you ready? Are you sure? Number one, let's turn to Adam. Of course, in the book of Bereshit, we're going to look at the so-called, and we've heard it many times, Adamic covenant. Adam was in a relationship with Yahweh, but newsflash, it wasn't a covenant. Fancy that. The relationship had boundaries. It had imparted laws. Adam broke those imparted laws, but that doesn't mean that it was a covenant. Because a covenant is what? It's an agreement between two people. It's an agreement between two people. It requires, at a minimum, a proposal and an acceptance. This is absent. There was a relationship and a condition placed upon it, but it was imposed. It wasn't proposed, it was imposed, therefore it is not a covenant. You see, we are going to be fighting and battling against thousands of years of high church theology, and we're going to be battling against rabbinical theology today. I just want you to be aware of that because this is going to be a paradigm shift because most of the terms that you and I have been taught are those high church or Talmudic control terms. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of the covenants of promise. Covenants of promise. You see, you cannot impose an agreement on somebody. And I don't believe we exchange one taskmaster for another. Yahweh is not a taskmaster. While you can impose law, you cannot impose an agreement on which a covenant is based. This is an oration or a decree by Yahweh that was given. It was an oration or a decree. I would state personally that I think that Adam was the first Melchizedek, but this would have been performed not by a covenant as much as a two-party, but more of an oath like in Psalm 110. Because there is no evidence that a covenant agreement was ever made between Adam and Yahweh. But it was, an, it was more of a oration Let's look at Noah. Number two, second point, Noah. Of course, Bereshit, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18. Bereshit, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18. Of course, it says in Mishle, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, it is the tifereth of Elohim, the glory of Elohim to conceal a matter, but the honor of Melachim, kings, to search out a matter. So some things aren't going to be as they would appear on the surface, but it is our job, if we are truly following and seeking him, to search these things out, to dig a little bit deeper than the surface. So don't knee-jerk 
Don't knee-jerk with your Strong's numbering system on this one. And that's, of course, the default action. Get behind your computer, boot up your Bible program, knee-jerk to your Strong's numbering system, and you've already made your decision before you've started to unearth what's beneath the surface. Because what will happen is you'll shoehorn yourself into a Noahidic covenant before you even got started. Because we've all heard these terms. Adamic covenant, Noahidic covenant. But you need to start to examine it a little bit deeper, a little bit further. Search out the matter first. Yahweh did not make a covenant just with Noah, did he? It included people, plants, animals, and the earth. So did the plants get to agree to this? Did the animals get to agree to this? You see, we just have to start thinking a little bit and things start to fall into place. But you knee-jerk and you start looking for those times Brit appears and every time it's a covenant and you've already shoehorned yourself into a theology. And this is what we're all trying to escape. And I'm telling you, this is supernatural freedom to Yahweh's royal Torah. It's awesome. It truly is. It truly is. What this was with Noah, it was an oath. It was an autonomous type covenant. He made of himself with himself to benefit all these others. Again, it doesn't have a proposal or need an acceptance. Because how would plants and animals and the earth accept anything? Right? How are they going to accept anything? So this is an autonomous type covenant that Yahweh made with himself. Genesis chapter 6, Bereshit 6.18 explains it. My covenant. 6 verse 18. My covenant, not our covenant. It's a decreed oration to benefit all living things that they don't have to agree to. Does that make sense? This is not a covenant agreement. It is more akin to instructions. But it's not a formal agreed upon covenant. You see, an oath of Yahweh does not require any form of ratification. Obviously, the rainbow was Yahweh's sign of his oath, which is still with us today. Now we're going to get into the third point, And we're going to look at Avraham. Avraham and we've got two covenants. Can we turn the heat down a little? Avraham and we've got two covenants with Avraham. This is the third point. But there's four things that must be present for a covenant to be a covenant of promise. Four things that must be present as we look into the covenants of promise. Number one, there's got to be a proposal. And we're going to see this proposal in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. In the first covenant that Yahweh makes with Avraham. In the second covenant that Yahweh makes with Avraham, you're going to see this proposal in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5. The second thing that must happen for it to be a covenant of promise, after the proposal, is there must be an acceptance And you're going to see this acceptance in Bereshit chapter 15, verse 6. The third thing that must be present for it to be a covenant of promise is blood ratification. 
And you're going to see this in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. And the fourth thing that has to be present for it to be a covenant of promise is a covenant confirming meal. And in this instance, it's actually accompanied with foot washing. And it's in Genesis chapter 18, verse 4. Four things that must be present for it to be identified as a covenant of promise. A proposal, an acceptance, blood ratification, and a covenant confirming meal. And ultimately, it should always connect back to Abraham for it to be a covenant of promise. And that's what we want to identify. So number one, let's look at this first covenant now here in Bereshit Genesis 12. This is the unconditional oath. This is an unconditional oath covenant. There's no blood that's needed. Why? Because it's unconditional. Yahweh swears by no one higher but himself. It's a self-covenant because all the covenants of promise wrap around something bigger than us. Praise Yahweh that they wrap around something way bigger than us. Yahweh's oath. All of the covenants of promise, they all wrap around Bereshit, Genesis 12, something bigger than us, Yahweh's oath. Not sacrificing animals, not circumcision, but Yahweh and his voice. The writer of Hebrews identifies the Genesis 12 oath as an oath at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. Because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiply I will multiply thee. This is referencing Bereshit, Genesis chapter 12. And we know this because of the law, the Torah, the law of first mention. Because when Yahweh Barak or Berachah, brings a blessing to Abraham, its first mention is right here. The law of first mention when it comes to the Hebrew word Barak and Barakah, blessing with Abraham, is right here in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 12. Now, in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, we find the law of first mention again. A double witness, we find Yahweh Amar Abraham. Yahweh said to Avraham. So this identifies that the oath that is spoken about in Hebrews 6.13 can be none other of the two Torot of first mentions. Now you can't wipe that off the table because that is a major understanding that we have to have when we study scripture is when is something first mentioned? Because from that point on, that is how you're going to identify Yahweh speaking with Abraham, Yahweh blessing Abraham. And when Yahweh speaks, you listen, Yahweh makes an oath. So you have to go back to that because that is just how the best, safest manner of interpreting the scriptures is because it's concrete. It's not me. It's not somebody else's opinion. opinion excuse me. It's concrete. Let's continue on a little further. Because what we're going to see now is that Isaac is not the token. And Isaac, the son, is not the oath. Because Christian commentators would say that Isaac is the token and Isaac is the oath. So we have to shed that stuff 
Because these are the things that people come in and front load and approach covenants with, these old Christian doctrines. So Isaac is not the oath. Isaac is not the token. What is Isaac then? If he's not the oath and if he's not the token, he's the reality of the promise. Isaac is the reality of the promise. Got to be comfortable. Got my water. We're just trying to get things dialed in here, aren't we? Oh, I don't need a fan. So let's continue on. Isaac is what? The reality of the promise. He's not the token and he's not the oath. He's the reality of the promise. The oath is always connected to Bereshit Genesis 12. Always. Because I would hope that everything that you and I do, it is not connected to us. But it is connected to something far greater than you and me being dependent upon us doing something perfect. I hope it's not connected to circumcision. I hope it's not connected to anything but Yahweh's voice and his unconditional oath to us. Because I know that even though I try, I fail. And this isn't about some self-righteous religious trip. This is about us being broken individuals that have been grabbed from, from the world by Yahweh and he's restoring us and making us whole. But ultimately, don't us ever forget where we came from, that we've got to connect back to something greater than us. So I'm solid that Yahweh's oath is his Genesis 12 unconditional covenant. Because I can sleep at night. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. I don't believe either that Zachariah's prophecy about Yeshua was speaking about a circumcision oath. Do you? Zachariah isn't prophesying about circumcision. He's prophesying about Yeshua enabling us to inherit the covenants of promise, which had originated with the promise to Abraham at Genesis, Bereshit, chapter 12. It was the oath of the holy covenant. Look at this, Luke chapter 1, verse 72. This is the prophesy, the prophecy of a Zadokite priest. This is Yochanan Hamabiel's Abba, John the Baptist's father, and this is what he says, speaking about the prophecy of Yeshua. He is able to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember the holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father, Avraham. Wow, it is wow. You cannot limit Yeshua's work to circumcision. You just can't. Yeshua's work is about connecting you back to the Father's oath. I do not come to do my will. The voice that he speaks isn't his own, but he comes to speak and do the will of the Father. 
And he wasn't walking around with flint knives trying to circumcise everyone that he came into because of an oath. Imagine in Genesis chapter 17 as the origin. No. You see? But it's hard. You've got 2,000 years of the church telling you the oath is Genesis 17. So you know what? You shackle it on and you approach the covenants with this already preconceived baggage. And it's tough. I'm not, I'm not judging people. It is tough to try and get the fresh manna. It's hard. Especially if you've been churched. Now, if you were a heathen like myself, an unchurched, it's a lot easier to shed the baggage because you only wore it for a few years. And you were very suspicious of it along the way too. Take that. I don't know. You're not holy unless you come to church on, sun, on Sunday, Wednesday, you know? Let's look at the second covenant of Abraham. This, of course, is Bereshit, Genesis chapter 15. And this is a conditional covenant. This is a conditional covenant, Bereshit, Genesis chapter 15. It's attached to a death condition. Thus, it's conditional. How about that? (laughs) Walking out the terms under penalty of death demonstrates, of course, the condition. Bereshit, Genesis 15, is a conditional covenant. It is not unconditional. And again, the church doctrines would tell you this is unconditional. But you examine the text and you go, well, hang on a minute. They're flaying open the pieces of flesh. There's a death condition attached to it. How can this be? This is double talk. But then again, these are the people that have given us the highbrow words like suzerain vassal treaty, Near Eastern ancient covenants and all of the like. So we have got to be able to be fresh, a fresh anointing. Let's continue on. We see this conditional covenant, conditional covenant. Yochanan, John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father, Avraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. When Yeshua referenced his day, he's talking about him walking between the pieces right here. That Avraham rejoiced to see his day because Yeshua is the one right here that walks between the pieces. This has to do, of course, with the Bereshit Genesis 15. My day is when he was the burning lamp and Yahweh was the fiery furnace in verse 17. It was then at this very covenant that Yeshua became the covenant Goel kinsman redeemer for all parties of the covenant. This is when the Goel kinsman redeemer is born right here because he now takes on the death penalty condition of the covenant that if the covenant is broken then somebody's going to have to die to enable you to connect back to the origin of all of the covenants of promise which of course is the oath that's what the writer of hebrews is emphasizing 
This is amazing. You will never connect back to Genesis 12, the oath out of Yahweh's mouth. If this covenant of Genesis 15 is broken, you only way you connect back is if the Goel kinsman redeemer pays the death penalty position. Oh, it's supernatural. It's supernatural because this is what Yeshua's work is all about. Let's continue on. Now, did Avraham want proof? Of this covenant. Now people misquote Romeo, Romans chapter 4 verse 2. And I'll, I'll read Romans 4 verse 2. But they often misquote Romans 4 verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before Eloah. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed Eloah, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, this is referencing verse 6 of chapter 15. But you have to continue reading, and you find in chapter 15, verse 8, that Avraham wanted what? He wanted proof. He wanted proof, and he requests a guarantee. So what do you see here? You see faith and works in action. Fancy that. You see? Of course, You want to divorce it and talk all about faith, but you have to read two verses later and you've got faith and works. And that's exactly what James, the brother of Yeshua, talks. And Can you see now why the church would cut some of this stuff out when they want to talk about covenants? Because it supports a faith, 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 faith theology. But we know that when you're truly walking with Yahweh, what comes first, works or faith? Faith. But then attached to that faith, an outpouring of that faith is a demonstration of works. And sometimes you do want proof from Yahweh. There's nothing wrong with asking Yahweh for proof. And that's what Avraham does in verse 8. So Genesis 12 entered in by pure faith. Yet Bereshit 15, Genesis 15, cutting up pieces of flesh, a certain amount of work, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's some hard work right there. So faith and works, yet the saving power is always entry back to Genesis 12. Faith, faith, unconditional covenant of Yahweh, which is pure faith. It is no work of man. It's the salvation plan. It's the salvation plan. It's important to note that the Genesis 15:9 covenant is the actual sign or answer to the question that was posed in verse 8 of chapter 15. What was the question? How shall I know I shall inherit it? Well, flay open some pieces of flesh and I'll demonstrate how you're going to inherit it, but it's going to have a conditional death penalty attachment to it. Through the covenant of pieces. So Isaac is not the token or the sign as Christian commentators would lead you to believe. Isaac, again, is the reality of the promise. Does this make sense so far? Okay. Now let's trot on a little bit further, a few chapters, to Bereshit, Genesis chapter 17. And let's look at circumcision. Because again, circumcision is the entrance sign. It's the entrance sign of the covenant. But it's not a covenant itself. 
It's not a covenant itself. I mean, we have got an uphill battle. Brethren, this is tough stuff. The faith that was once delivered to the saints is not sitting on the surface. You've got to dig a little bit for it. But it's not complex. And it doesn't take all day. It's for the children. But children do like to sift a little bit under the surface, do they not? Do they not? So we understand that circumcision is the entrance sign of the covenant, but it is not a covenant itself. Just like the ring is the sign of the marriage covenant, it's not the marriage itself, right? I can take my ring off right now. I'm still married to my wife. It's the sign that I'm married to her, but it's not the marriage itself. It's a reminder, exactly. It's a reminder. It's a reminder. Unlike the change of name, though, the change of name happens in the blood covenant, does it not? And where does Abraham's change of name happen? Happens in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 15. You see, you just have to dig a little. But it's not complex, but it's right there, just a little bit under the surface. The change of Abraham connected to the blood covenant did not happen in Genesis 17. It happened in Genesis 15. (laughs) She's got her hood up. It's cold now? I tell you, we just can't. We're going to have to dial this thing in. Well, I've got some chilled water up here and feeling mucky, mucky good. But I did make a bold statement there, and I said what? Genesis 17 is not a covenant. It is the sign of the covenant. Well, you should be able to back that up with Scripture. Let's go. Genesis 17, verse 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be for you a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's the token, it's the sign of the covenant between you and me. It's not the covenant itself. Just like the ring is the token, the sign, it's not the covenant itself. You see, all Israel entered the covenant, both male and female, by passing through the cutting of the organ. Did they not? Through circumcision, each successive generation as seed passed through the cutting and thus inherited all the covenant blessings. Colossians informs us that Yeshua's circumcision was for all of us who passed through a non-circumcised or broken covenant circumcised organ. We inherit the covenants of promise by faith through his covenant walking through the pieces as the burning lamp, not because of circumcision in Genesis 17. Hence why it says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Mashiach, by the cutting of Mashiach's body. Praise Yahweh. Now, in Scripture, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed at His goodness. I truly am. I truly am. 
Now, in Scripture, it does sometimes say that Yahweh breaks covenant. But then other times it says that Yahweh doesn't. So then I start digging it. I said, well, so what is it? Does Does he break covenant or does he not break covenant? Well, let's have a look at that. It's quite important to establish, is it not? It is to me. Let's go to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 10. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 10. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I may break my covenant which I made with all the people. But then if you go to Tehillim, Psalms 89, verse 34, you find something different. My covenant will I not break. Well, hang on a minute. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. There's the condition. What just happened there? What just happened there? Zechariah speaks of the Genesis 15 conditional covenant that Yahweh will break. It's a conditional covenant. You break the covenant, the covenant's broken. There's a death penalty position that's going to be paid. It's going to be by the cutting of his son, the circumcision made without hands. Yet, I will never break the covenant that came out of my mouth. Genesis chapter 12, the oath. It is unconditional. There is no contradiction in Scripture. Yahweh's word is perfect. It is perfect. It is me and you that have got problems. Apparently, especially me. Brother's sitting there with a big grin on his face because he knows I appreciate the sparklies. Thank you. Now, it's important to note that there is no covenant with Zedek in Genesis chapter 14. Does the covenant confirming meal come before or after the covenant? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? I mean, it would be very nice just to jump back to Genesis chapter 14 and prove the covenant of Genesis 15 by chapter 14, but it really doesn't work. It would be nice, because it's all Malkitzedek and that. But the covenant confirming meal is in Genesis 18. The meal under the terebinth trees, which is after the proposal, the acceptance, the blood ratification, the circumcision entry sign. I would like the Genesis 14 to be the covenant confirming meal, but it's not. I know it sounds good and it's all super Malkizedic and exciting, but it's not true. The covenant confirming meal is after the proposal, after the acceptance, after the blood ratification. It's the covenant confirming meal underneath the terebinth trees underneath the terebinth trees so now let's go to my fourth point it's Pesach let's go to Shemot Exodus chapter 12 Passover so so far I want to give you a little recap on what these points are 
My first point was, Adam is not a covenant. My second point was that Noah, that this, that Yahweh made an oath, an oration, a self-autonomous covenant with himself, because for it to be a covenant, there is a proposal and an acceptance. Obviously, the plants and the animals and the earth didn't accept anything. My third point was to make the distinction between the two covenants that were given to Abraham. The first covenant was an unconditional oath sworn out of Yahweh's mouth in Genesis chapter 12. And the second covenant was the conditional covenant in Genesis chapter 15. These are the covenants of promise that were given to Abraham. Genesis 12, the covenant of promise, and Genesis 15, the covenant of promise. Genesis 17, of course, a sign of entrance into the covenant, not the covenant itself. So now let's continue on, and we see now the Passover. Each household in Egypt was identified through blood as the intended inheritors of the conditional covenant given to Abraham through the blood covenant of Genesis 15, which was how many years earlier? 430 years earlier, spoken to us throughout the scriptures. It's amazing. So when they put the blood over the doorpost and the lintel, they were identifying back to Bereshit, Genesis chapter 15, and the covenants of promise that they were wanting to be a part of that promise that was given to Abraham 430 years earlier. It's amazing. Let's go to point number five. We're going to now look at the book of the covenant. Our text is, of course, the book of the covenant, Shemot Exodus 19.5, and the book itself extending through chapter 24, verse 8. And, of course, it also we see the blood ratification within this covenant. We have a proposal. We have an acceptance We have blood ratification and we have a covenant confirming meal. This is a covenant of promise, just like Genesis 12 is a covenant of promise, just like Genesis 15 is a covenant of promise. The book of the covenant in Exodus 19 is one of these blessed covenants of promise because it has all of the qualifications needed. A proposal, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant confirming meal. The proposal is in the fifth verse of chapter 19. The acceptance is in the eighth verse of chapter 19. The blood ratification is in chapter 24, verse 8. And the covenant confirming meal is in chapter 24, verse 11. If it's blood ratified, does that mean that this covenant was enacted? Yes, of course it would be. Imagine if it wasn't enacted and the 70 elders went up the mountain to have dinner with Yahweh. What would have happened to them? They would have been dead. Blood ratification means the covenant is enacted. The hard copy of the book of the covenant is more than just 10 words. Exodus chapter 24, Shemot 24 verse 3, all these words, that mean, all means, all means all. 
All these words that Yahweh has said we will do. Verse 3, the Hebrew word there, we find Dabar, but it's not limited to Dabar. It's Dabar and Mishpatim. You can't cut chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, and chapter 24 out of the book of the covenant. Because it's Dabar Mishpatim, all these words and judgments, that means all. Including the covenant confirming meal in verse 11 of chapter 24. These are all part of the book of the covenant. It's blood ratified. And then we have the covenant confirming meal in Exodus chapter 24 verse 11. And it's really hard. Because we've got this church mindset of ten commandments. But the spoken statutes and relayed judgments in Exodus 24 verse 3 are part of the covenant and again identified as such in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 1, along with all the words spoken to the people at Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 10 and in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 14. These verses all identify the one day of all the assembly as opposed to the 40 days of the one man Moses. Because was this covenant with just Moses or was it with all of the assembly? All of the assembly, exactly. After the giving of the 10 mitzvot, so called as well. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 22, it is written, These words... Yahweh spoke to all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick darkness and a great voice and he added lo which can be translated no more but it can also be translated as verily or for a truth more and he added verily for a truth more which would agree with Exodus 24, verse 3, would it not? All these words, including the Mishpatim, not limited to the Dabar. Very important that we understand the whole broad scope of what this book of the covenant, it's not limited to 10 words. It could be 10, but it could also be up to 120,000 words. If you look at the Hebrew word that says the 10 commandments, it's Dabar, it's not commandments, ten Dabar, but it could also be up to 120,000 words. What was Moshe doing up there for 40 days if it was just ten words? It was the whole of the covenant, not limited to just Exodus 20, as we can see by the testimony of Exodus 24, verse 3. This is amazing stuff. But again, this takes a little research, but once it's explained and we dig around and we have the scriptures, I see some of you taking notes, you'll be able to go back and it's right there. Praise Yahweh for the enormous work that is already in these scriptures for his saints to dig out. It's exciting times that we can do it together, truly. But we have to understand that this is a journey, not a theology or a doctrine. Does that make sense? Let's look at our, the sixth point. Let's look at the book of the law. The book of the law. The book of the law begins... Well, let me ask you. If nobody can add to a covenant, right? 
And the book of the covenant is blood ratified and there's a covenant confirming meal in Exodus 24:11. Now it's blood ratified and you've got a covenant confirming meal. Can you add anything to that? Galatians. So when the, when Yahweh says in Exodus 24 verse 12, come up here and I'll give you a law. Can he be adding that law to the book of the covenant or is it something completely distinctly separate? It's only separate if your mindset of covenants includes the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians. So now we understand why Judaism says, no, it's all one thing. But if you want to live in partial revelation, or you want to fully live under the full counsel of Elohim. So I'm going to be honest and upfront and tell you, like I already have, that when I'm examining covenants, I'm using the whole of scripture from Bereshit to Gileana, Genesis to Revelation. That does include... Galatians and Hebrews. So I know when that law is mentioned in verse 12, it has got to be, it simply has to be something new because Paul tells the Galatians that you cannot add to a blood ratified covenant. You can't. Impossible. It's a covenant of promise. It's sealed. You've had a meal. It's confirmed. You and I cannot add to the finished work of Yeshua. Because he proposed at Passover, they accepted at Passover, he got crucified and they had a covenant confirming meal where he took and said, this is my blood. Are you going to tell me now that we can add to that? Or is that covenant ratified, sealed, and you and I cannot add any of our own laws, theology, and doctrines to it? Thank goodness we can't add to it. Praise Yahweh. Right? amazing stuff let's continue on so we're going to find that the book of the law begins in exodus 24 verse 12 i'm not sure if some of you are getting the chills from the ruach hakodesh or from the air conditioning because i saw you you're like he's like Ooh. i'm just going to go with the ruach hakodesh <laughs> yeah It's just the fellas with no hair that are doing the Ruach HaKodesh (laughs) chill. So the book of the law is from Exodus Shemot 24 verse 12. Through Deuteronomy, but it's not limited to the book of Deuteronomy because the book of the law goes into the book of Joshua because Joshua adds to it. Well, hang on a minute. If Joshua adds to the book of the law... Can it be a covenant? Who said that? Who said no? It can't be, can it? See, it all starts to make sense when you look at it through the weight of Scripture and get those bags of religion off. So if you look at Joshua, and we'll go there later, he adds to the book of the law in the book of Joshua, which can tell you two things. One, the book of the law is not limited to the book of Deuteronomy. It's not limited to 24.12 through Deuteronomy. It's not limited to Exodus 24.12 through 
the book of Deuteronomy. It goes into Joshua. And then the second thing, it cannot be a covenant because he adds to it. Let's examine this. Very important. The book of the law is Exodus 24, 12 through Deuteronomy and into the book of Joshua. It is not a covenant. It includes the law of Moses, but it's not a covenant. There is no proposal, no agreed acceptance, no ratification of any kind, let alone by blood, and no covenant confirming meal. That's why Joshua can add to the book of the law in Joshua, Yehoshua chapter 24, verse 26. He couldn't do that if it was a covenant, Galatians 3.15. It is inclusive of the second set of tablets or the law of Moses. Because why? Why was it inclusive of the law of Moses? Because Moses cut the stones. Moses talked to the people. Moses did not mediate this law concession, did he? There was no exchange Moshe delivered this formal legal oration to a group. They couldn't exactly say no, because they would have what? Died. (laughs) At that point, you take whatever you can get, right? (laughs) Yahweh didn't engage with the people with whom he was making this temporal law enactment with. Yahweh set up a perimeter between him and the people in which only Levites could function, showing us the already in function Levitical priesthood, spoken of in Numbers chapter 3 verse 2 and Exodus, Shemot chapter 34, demonstrating that this was a bloodless law action. To be under the Levitical priesthood, Hebrews 7.11, they were not a Malkitzedic priesthood, and this is not a covenant, let alone a covenant of promise. It's paramount we understand the distinction between the initial blood covenant with the first set of tablets and the second set of tablets that was not a blood covenant. It wasn't even a covenant. It was an imposed law. The distinction of blood and no blood between them identifies that they cannot be what? One and the same. One and the same. Galatians identifies what law was added at Exodus chapter 24 verse 12. After the ratified book of the covenant. Galatians doesn't mention the five books of Moses. Galatians doesn't mention the term the five books of Moses as the traditional antinomian church would have you believe. Galatians doesn't mention the oral law as messianics would have you believe. Nor does it mention a separate law of Moses. But what does Galatians mention and identify by name? Galatians identifies by its name the book of the law in Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. So what do you think we're talking about in the book of Galatians? Are we talking about the law of Moses? Are we talking about the rabbinic oral law? Or are we talking about the book of the law? It's identified for us in verse 10. You see? Verse 17 informs us that the law, of course, now identified seven verses earlier, 
came 430 years later and was after the covenant. That's amazing. The law, the book of the law, identified in verse 10, came 430 years later and was after the covenant. It's identifying exactly when the book of the law was imposed, Exodus 24:12. You see, this isn't some pick-a-mix, quick-jerk knee reaction to covenant theology. It's just discipleship. But it also isn't some crazy, complex, convoluted thing that we've got to track with for years. It's right here. It's amazing, and it's liberation to royal covenant Torah, the covenants of promise, which include the feasts, the Shabbats, how to eat what is acceptable, what goes on Yahweh's altar, on his table goes on your table. I mean, I mean, it's so wonderful as we examine what these covenants of promises are. So... Galatians identifies that the law that was added in Exodus 24:12 after the blood ratified covenant was confirmed was verse 10 the book of the law no gymnastics needed no esoteric twisting needed no emotional pleas just what line upon line precept upon precept here a little there a little now i sound like a calvary chapel pastor sorry <laughs> so the law added in Exodus 24:12, can only be the book of the law according to Rav Sholiach Shaul's communication to the Galatians and confirmed by Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Now, many people talk and, and talk and talk about covenants, and I've even heard outlandish statements like, you will find 100% every single time the book of the law is mentioned that is always speaking of Deuteronomy, a covenant added to the law of Moses. And I scratch my head and I go, what? Because in Joshua, Yehoshua chapter 24 verse 26 proves that that's a false statement. A, you can't add to a covenant, so the book of the law is not a covenant then, right? And B, it's outside of Deuteronomy. It's a law that wasn't ratified, thus it is changeable and that's what ezekiel talks about in the 20th chapter and the 25th verse i get so excited studying this stuff out and i get so excited of talking with all of the brethren because we can really start to to question and dig and dig but we dig and we go with what the word says and then we're safe and we're solid and we're free right we don't want to be held captive by theology, we don't want to be held captive by doctrine. We want to be set free by the word of Yahweh. You're not held captive to what I'm teaching today. Because you're going to go and you're going to go and look at what the scripture says. I'm not going to make it complex for you. Give you the verses, give you the verses, give you the chapters. And it's all right there. Line upon line. Precept upon precept. So the law of Moses can't be some separate law from the book of the law. It is inclusive within the book of the law. The phrase, the law of the Moses, comes from the book of the law of Moses. It's just the short form. 
It comes from the book of the law of Moses and it appears in the Bible four times with the Torah of first mention in Yehoshua, Joshua chapter 8, verse 31. Neither phrase, law of Moses or book of the law of Moses appear in Galatians 3. So we're not talking about that. In the Galatians, we must be talking about the book of the law, Galatians 3, verse 10. The phrase, book of the law of Moses, never appears in the New Testament, but the phrase, the book of the law, appears one time, one time, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. So the context of Paul's writings is identified for us. It's the book of the law. That's freedom right there. Freedom to identify what he's talking about. So when he's talking about in the fourth chapter, an allegory between Sarah and Hagar, what is he talking about when he says there's an allegory between the Jerusalem above and the Jerusalem that is below? He's talking about how we are to interpret the text. It's amazing to me. What gives away the game totally is the phrase, the law of Moses is found in John chapter 7, verse 23. And the law of Moses is found in Acts chapter 15, verse 5. And it's in reference to what? The land entrance sign of circumcision. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 2. The point is this. The law of Moses cannot be its own law or limited to just the book of Deuteronomy or to the first five books of the Bible because the phrase is attached to circumcision in a text outside of those parameters. It's attached to either Genesis 17.10 or it's attached, in this case, to a land entrance circumcision sign of Joshua chapter 5 verse 2. So you can't say it's limited to the book of Deuteronomy. You can't say it's limited to the book of Leviticus. And you, the parameters are outside of the scope of that. Does that make sense? Then to compound that, we find in Yehoshua, Joshua chapter 8 verse 31... And Yehoshua, Joshua 23, verse 6, are outside of the first five books. So it can't even be limited to the first five books. All the mentions of the book of the law and the book of the law of Moses are synonymously interchangeable. And begin in the law at Exodus 24, verse 12, extending past Deuteronomy into Joshua with additions and changes, meaning it cannot be a covenant. So when Paul gives you the allegory and says these are two covenants, you knee-jerk and you go, oh, it's got to be a covenant. But we said again, you cannot just take that word Brit and mean it's a covenant. You have to look at the context of the text to define its meaning because it can mean other things as well as the knee-jerk reaction in your Strong's numbering system. Does that make sense? This stuff excites me. It truly does. Now we're going to make my seventh point. Exodus chapter 34. And it's important that we don't lump all these covenants together because this in Shemot Exodus 34 it's important for us to understand that this is Moshe Rabbeinu's 10th ascent up the mountain. 
and he gets the second set of tablets. Moshe makes new tablets in Shemot 40, 34, verse 1, excuse me. Moshe receives a second set of tablets that would be placed inside the ark with the book of the law on the outside of the ark as a witness against Israel because they broke the covenant. Deuteronomy 31 verse 26. Take this book of the law and put it at the side of the ark of the testimony of Yahweh, your Elohim, that it may be there for a witness against you. Shemot, Exodus 34, verse 10, this is a tablet replacement of the first broken tablets, the ones that were attached to the book of the covenant that was cut. Of course, that book of the covenant was a a cut, which means it was blood ratification. Whereas Exodus 34, is that cut? It's not cut. There is no blood cutting covenant here. Exodus 34 contains no proposal, there's no acceptance, there's no blood ratification, and there's certainly no covenant-confirming meal. There is no barit cutting and passing between the flesh. This is a limited covenant of land stewardship and border expansion. Read verse 24. It's right there. This is a limited covenant of land stewardship and border expansion. This is not a blood covenant and it is not a covenant of promise. Verse 24 identifies that it's a limited covenant of border expansion and land stewardship. Shemot, Exodus chapter 34, cannot be a covenant of promise. It comes after the original Malkitzedic covenant and the break of the golden calf. This is a Levitical concession action. It is not a covenant of promise. It's really an enactment of law. You misbehave, we enact laws to keep you within the fences so that you don't get killed. So that you don't get killed. It's an enactment of law until the time of reformation when the seed would come to liberate you to allow you to be lawless heavens forbid allow you to come back under the guidance of royal covenant of promise torah amazing amazing so we find this levitical concession action is not a covenant of promise but an enactment of law until the time of reformation hebrews chapter 8 the Levitical priesthood, Hebrews 7.11, began with the law that brought it at Exodus 24.12. Because it's all about conception. The conception point of the book of the law is Exodus 24.12. When does life begin? Birth? Conception. So when does the book of the law begin? At the golden calf breach that is... Or is it at its conception point? But its conception point is synonymous with the golden calf breach, Exodus 24, 12, because Torah is not chronological. And that's a huge stumbling block. And we speak about that often. You have to differentiate between narrative in Torah that is chronological. There's Abraham, then there's Isaac, and then there's Jacob. And mitzvot, which is achronological, meaning that the manna 
was supposed to be laid up before the Ark of the Testimony in the 16th chapter of Shemot, yet the Ark of the Testimony isn't even made until the 25th chapter. It's a mitzvot. It's not chronological. But you can't say that kind of stuff got me kicked out of the church. Because I would question things like that. But we're free to question now. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated by control tactics. Don't be intimidated by control words with covenant. Suzerain vassal treaty. Royal grant covenant. Redemption covenant. Well, I better shut up. The guy seems to know what he's talking about. No. They're not even scriptural terms. Covenants of promise. Everlasting covenants. These are tangible, meat and bones, solid scriptural terms. It's, uh, it's liberation. Liberation to royal covenants of promise Torah. Let's continue on. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that remains is glorious. Seeing that when we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, not as Moshe, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished, the book of the law. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Now we get to the eighth point that I would like to make. It's a new covenant not renewed, but it is a new covenant. Yeshua establishes a new covenant because we've just established earlier through Galatians that nobody adds. You can break a covenant, but you cannot, so it cannot be a renewed covenant if it's a covenant of promise. It must be totally new. And it must have a proposal, an acceptance, blood ratification and covenant confirming meal. Yeshua establishes a new covenant. He proposes, they accept, he brings forth the blood ratification, shows it in the cup and then later the next day crucified and they are there having a covenant confirming meal. Everything is present and it always connects back to Abraham. This is a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 verse 32 establishes it. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. You mean it's going to be something new? You're not going to renew what you made with their fathers? Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. They broke. Dasha. We hear that, Brit Hadasha, Dasha. Dasha, it can mean to make new or rebuild, but the new parts are brand new. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Yahweh does not have to keep a covenant that has been broken by the other party. It's broken. The new covenant is the first fruits. It's to the first fruits instead of what? Instead of the firstborn. The new covenant is to the first fruits instead of the firstborn. 
Ask yourself, not like, not according to in Jeremiah 31, 32, doesn't sound like renew, does it? It sounds like completely new. It becomes clear that the new covenant's purpose is to replace the blood covenant the Israelite Egyptian fathers broke at Sinai. And if Yeshua pays the death penalty position, will we inherit the oath promise in Genesis 12? But he has to pay that death penalty position as the Goel, kinsman, redeemer. Number nine, the ninth point, the covenant with David, the Levites, and the day and night. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 17. This says Yahweh, David shall never lack an heir to sit upon the Kesei, the throne of Beit Israel, the house of Israel. Neither shall the Kohanim, the Levim, lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle grain offerings and do sacrifice continually. Well, where are they? And the word of Yahweh came to Yeremiahu, saying, This says Yahweh, if you can break my Brit, my covenant with the day, listen, if you can break my Brit, my covenant with the day, and my Brit, my covenant with the night, that there should not be day and night in their time, in their season, then maybe also my Brit will be broken with David, my Eved, that he should not have a son to rule upon his kesei, and with the Levim, the Kohanim, my Avadim. So people will quote this verse and say, the Levites are going to be forever, forever. You can't say, well, where are they? If continually means continually, well, where are they? Well, David's going to forever have somebody on his throne. Well, where are they? You see, what they don't want you to look to is Melachim Aleph, 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 5, that gives you the context. As I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But, <laughs> you've got to watch out for the big buts. You really do. But... If ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land. Does that sound like it's got a condition attached to it? That if you don't do what I say, then you're not going to get what you could get. Right? But don't look where I just told you to look. Because then you can look over here. And you can follow after a doctrine, after religion, and after men's teachings. There is nothing, I've got to tell you, there is nothing, nothing like it in the world about teaching and edifying the brethren that see that the shackles are coming off and to be a part of that. I wouldn't exchange that in the world for anything of what men could have you to lock you down to be in their camp. There's no way. There's no way. 
Because what I get from you guys when those lights come on and you see those shackles coming off and the testimonies we get from husbands and wives and marriages that were bound and shackled in the church or in Levitical hierarchy and all of that stuff or being bogged down and bogged down by high complex theologies that ah, it sounds good, but yeah. just to, and, and to see the freedom of what Yahweh can do in his people is so encouraging to me. So what we find is that this was a conditional covenant that Israel and Judah failed to walk in. This is not a covenant of promise. All covenant authority of monarchy and priesthood were transferred to Yahweh's son. People twist this verse to mean a without end Davidic or Levitical dynasty. Well, where is it? Even in Yeshua's time, there was no king of Israel, let alone from the line of David. And there hadn't been one since Zedekiah and the Babylonian captivity, about 587 before the common era. And there was no Levitical priesthood to boot for the past 2,000 years. So just that alone. But we've already identified, because we read the scripture in Kings, that it was a condition that they failed to meet. Yeshua himself decreed over Yerushalayim that their house would be left, not made, but left to them desolate. As in it already was, Matthew chapter 23 verse 38. And he said that they had a house, right? Meaning a kingdom has a king, but a house doesn't, does it? There was no king. A kingdom has a king, a house doesn't. Their house would be left as in already was desolate. They had no king. And Jeremiah identifies monarchy and priesthood. Yes, he does. And he identifies monarchy and priesthood as permanent parts of Yahweh's plan for Israel, for sure. But what people fail to realize is the promise of a perpetual priesthood is revealed in Yochanan Hamabil, John the Baptist's transference rights to the Malkit Zedek and the continuance of the Davidic monarchy seen in the Davidic Messiah that fulfills all righteousness. It's amazing. And people don't realize that kingship change, it had already been prophesied by Jeremiah earlier. Turn with me to chapter 22, verse 30. Jeremiah already prophesied that there would be a kingship change. The king's line was going to be childless. It wasn't going to prosper. Neither him or his descendants would sit on the throne or rule anymore. There's your prophecy. And the priesthood changed. Jeremiah prophesied that in chapter 3, verse 16. But these highbrow teachers, they want to lock you in to a text and they don't want you to look at the other text so they, they can assert their position, their teaching and their dogma over you and enslave you and encapsulate you. But we just look at the other verses of the scripture surrounding and you're free. Free to be disciples and students of Yahweh's word, not bound to me, not bound to him, not bound to anyone, but bound to Yahweh. And then we're all bound together in the Echad, the Vayachel of the assembly. That's the strength. The power is in the Vayachel bound to him. I'm a facilitator, but we're the same. I just have a different function right now. 
I just have a different function. But we're the same. And that is what we have to come to understand. It's amazing. Let's continue on. We find now that the kingship change was prophesied, but the priesthood change was also prophesied. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 16. The ark of the covenant, i.e. the priesthood, wouldn't come to mind. It wouldn't be remembered. And it wouldn't be visited anymore. I.e. it was finished. To seal the transference, Yahweh then makes, Yahweh then breaks his agreement with the day and the night as the Malkit Zedek dies on a tree in Matthew 27 verse 45. His death is what qualifies his priesthood, whereas within the Levitical priesthood, the death is what disqualified their priesthood. So then Yahweh seals the transference by breaking his covenant with the day and the night, and it becomes dark in the middle of the day. Just in case you were wondering, I mean, it's all right, my goodness. I know, but brothers and sisters, it's amazing how... I have been trying to be drugged down the road into all of this doctrine. So then when I come up here and I get fired up, you don't understand what I've been having to deal with for a a month by people trying to drag me various parts and drag this ministry into all kinds of avenues. And you're like, well, I've got to spend some time in the Word. Is that okay? Can I just spend some time in the Word? I need some quiet time. I don't want to go online. I don't want to talk. I don't want to get engaged in all of that stuff. I'm just going to go where I go best. I sit home in my leather chair and I read and I pray. And then I'll come and teach what I believe is true. But I've got to have some space. So when I get up here a little fired up, you might not know the backstory. So excuse me on that. It's a ton of pressure. Isn't it not, Brother John? He, 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 I, I throw it all at him. You deal with it. You deal with it. And he does. Well, you should do that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, uh. He, poor guy. He's like walking around like this. <laughs> so there is a backstory to all of this. It's been going on for years. It really has. But as we push further, the pressure escalates more and more to compromise. It does. As you push further, the pressure comes more and more to compromise, especially as ministry grows. Oh, yeah. So we have to stay on track and we have to stay focused. And that's why I disengage. I go home and I just get into the word and I just don't engage in all that stuff because I know that if I can be in the word, in prayer and study, that Yahweh has always, I have a history with Yahweh since I was 24, that he is always faithful to show me, but I've got to do my due diligence. And part of that is I've got to stop listening to all of the noise. And that's what he tells us. Am I in the earthquake? Am I in the fire? Am I in the lightning? Where is he? He's in the still, small voice. He's always in the still, small voice. But we live in a world where S.A. Tan owns these airwaves. And if he can clutter up your mind with all of this bickering, all of this online keyboard stuff, clutter, 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 that you can't have the quiet. 
So, we listen to the still small voice. And we listen and the word comes forth. So we find so much here. Now let's look at the tenth point. The five covenants of promise. Four things, of course, that have to be a part of a covenant of promise. A proposal, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant confirming meal. And it should always connect back to Abraham. Ephesians 2.12 That at that time you were without Mashiach, being excluded, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, as Gerim from the covenants of promise, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without Eloah in the Olam Hazer. The five covenants of promise. Number one, Genesis 12 is an unconditional, autonomous covenant based upon Yahweh's oath, which everything wraps around. Number two, Genesis 15 is a conditional covenant and it is granted upon request of a guarantee. Number three, Exodus 19.5, the book of the covenant is the Malkitzedic realization to the nation that was promised in the covenant of Genesis 15 430 years earlier. The fourth covenant of promise is the new covenant Yeshua proposed at Passover. He had a covenant confirming meal. He blood ratified it and he awaits our acceptance by faith. Our acceptance by faith is kind of the wild card, is it not? I mean, it truly is. It's a wild card, man. It really is. Wow. How could he pick? Some of you. <laughs> and John's in the back and like, yeah, I've worked with you now for a year. How could he have picked you? <laughs> the fifth covenant of promise, the marriage of the Lamb, Giliana. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 19. And of course, the fifth covenant of promise, the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation 19 verse 7 is the covenant. The New Testament is the proposal. Yeshua's robe is dipped in the blood of ratification. The new covenant awaits our acceptance. And will we hear the voice from the book of the covenant mountain calling us? Revelation 3 verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door. And I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and what? Have a covenant confirming meal with him. It's all right there. I will come and sup with him. Revelation 19 verse 7 is the marriage. And verse 9 is the marriage supper of the lamb. It's the sup or the covenant confirming meal spoken of earlier in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. If you hear the voice from the book of the covenant mountain. Oh, it's all right there. Because you heeded the covenant calling of the voice, you get to go to the marriage supper of the lamb. Revelation 3 verse 20, come in and sup. Come in is the acceptance and the sup, of course, is the covenant confirming meal. The voice connects back to Exodus 19 verse 5. That's the voice. My sheep hear my voice. 
The voice is the dedicated phrase of the covenant. When you hear that, it's the dedicated phrase of the covenants of promise. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are called by a voice. So in closing, there's two veils that just need to be shredded. They just need to be shredded. 2 Corinthians 3.13 Not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look at the end of that which was abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, like today, like even today, when people read the Old Testament, there's a veil over their eyes. You see, there's two veils. There's a Jewish veil. And then there's a Christian veil. And the Jewish veil is this. They get confused reading the Old Testament. Is that most Jews understand that the law of Moses, it did what? They understand that it did actually preserve their life from the violation of breaking the covenant. But it was an enactment of law. Most Jews do not fully recognize that the law of Moses, which is the book of the law, was to remain only until the death penalty position could be paid allowing all Israel access back to the covenants of promise of which the law of Moses and the book of the law is not most Jews do not understand that the blood covenant of Exodus 19 has been made new in Yeshua that's why they fear setting aside any of the Torah instructions, the law as they know it in their lives, because they think that they are preserved by that law. And number two, the Christian veil, or confusion in reading the Old Testament, is this. The most Christians know that the law of Moses was abolished when Yeshua established a new blood covenant. Most Christians do not fully understand that the law of Moses was a distinct law enactment and not the whole of the Old Testament law. The most Christians do not realize that the blood covenant that was made new by Yeshua has Torah teachings and instructions attached to it. Most Christians set aside too much of the instructions of the covenant because of a misunderstanding of law and grace the veil is there for both christian and jew until their hearts are turned to yahweh and his covenants of promise and they follow the teaching and instructions the torah of the covenants of promise that's the key ephesians 2 verse 14 in closing yeshua is our shalom amen Yeshua is our shalom. He has made both one. He's made both one. And he has broken down the middle wall of separation. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law or the book of the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Not contained in covenant, but contained in imposed, not agreed to ordinances so as to create in himself one new man. From the two, thus making shalom. But I'm making this all up. <laughs> Goodbye. I mean, really. Really? 
But the ones that do say I'm making it up, got no scripture. You see? But what we like to do is to reinforce the truth using scripture and that sets us free from the doctrines and dogmas of men. We have some questions in the back. Questions, Brother John? Um, you everybody hearing? I can hear you. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you do. Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. <laughs> Um, my question is, is, um, we know that the book of the law is not covenant. We know that all the ordinances and everything that Yeshua took upon the cross, according to Colossians. But why are, in, in Exodus 23, it says there was three feast days that Yahweh wants us to do. But in Leviticus 23, there are seven. Why were the, why were they added? But if, if they're added on in the, in Leviticus 23, then if that's part of the ordinances that Yeshua, or the book of the law that's done away with, are we still supposed to do all seven instead of the three? Yeah, we're supposed to do the feast of Yahweh because you can see the feast throughout the scripture, but that even in the book of the law, there was the three ascension feasts. So that's what, but that doesn't limit it to just the three because we can see that... Um, that the Moedim, the feast, the Shabbats, and the dietary requirements, these are all part of covenant living. It's all part of being Israel. How we approach them is distinctly different. And like I say, even when we do in a, a study on the book of Yehezkel, the book of Ezekiel, you do find some glaring absences with Yom Kippur, and um, we've discussed that previously. But there are definitely some distinctions for sure. Okay, this is an online question. Where does Abram's circumcision name change to Abraham fit into all this? Where does his, circum- where does his name where do, change? Where does Abram's circumcision slash name change to Abraham fit into all this? Well, when his name change was in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 15, which was part, what we see is part of that blood covenant, the covenant of promise, whereas the, the 17, Genesis 17, was the entrance sign to it, but not the covenant itself. Didn't we discuss that in, during the teaching? I thought we did. But yeah, maybe we can clarify that a little bit between ourselves. Any other questions at all? No? All right. With us, yes. That's okay. I think we're... Yeah. Yeah, I, I really believe it's that veil that we just read about in Corinthians, that it was a veil. I mean, how many times have we all read this? I mean, I've, like I said, been studying the Malkitzenic for nearly 15 years, and I look back on my notes when I was doing teaching at Calvary Chapel, and it was super elementary, but I was teaching on the, on the Malkitzenic, but then out of the same side of my mouth, I would say statements like, well, of course, we can't keep the Ten Commandments. I mean, so, I mean, but I had, it was within me to always dig into the Malkin Zedek, but my, my understanding was, 
was, was very elementary and it's grown along the, the years. And even now, I think we're going to grow and grow past this too together. But we just have to be thankful that that veil in reading the Tanakh has now been lifted because it's everywhere. It truly is. It's that narrow road that leads to life. Yes. Yes. 